You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Epiphany forces us to come to terms with the biggest and most important question that humans can ask. It's the question. It's primary and it's basic to all others. And the question, of course, has to do with Jesus. Who is Jesus is the question. Now, I think it's quite a claim to say this morning that who is Jesus is the most important question in the history of the world. Philosophers have asked some some pretty big and poignant questions throughout the centuries. Plato, you may remember from college, asked, where is the real world to be found? Is it found in our senses or located in our ideas? That's, that's actually kind of a big deal. Aristotle, way back in the day, raised the question, how can we be truly happy? Is life, despite all of its suffering, worth living? That's a question that appears pretty relevant. Early 20th century philosopher raised this poignant question, why is there something and not nothing? You know, I, I chuckle even just rehearsing these highfalutin philosophical questions. This is the reason why I think most of us might sigh a sigh of relief when our children tell us they're studying something other than philosophy in college. I mean, who, who wants Johnny or Susie in our basements for the rest of our adult lives figuring out the problems of the Western mind, but I'll leave that to the side. But these are, these are all very important questions. And the Bible isn't uninterested in them, even if it frames those questions and answers it in its own way. But none of those questions matter in any ultimate or final sense if the question, who is Jesus, is not raised and answered first. Because this question has to do with eternity, with our souls and our bodies, with the sum of all of reality. The question, who is Jesus, is wrapped up in the question, who is God? And these are the biggest questions of life. And the season of Epiphany is is the church's season to behold our Savior unveiled and revealed once again for who he really is. The curtain is being pulled back. This morning, our gospel reading sits right on top of the who is Jesus question. We find Jesus standing in a synagogue, you can just, even in the reading, you can hear the low hum of gathered worshipers and praying and singing and listening to the scriptures read. And then Jesus, the carpenter's son, stands as he has before. The scroll of Isaiah is open before him. A hush falls on the crowd as they listen to this carpenter's son, who also happens to be the creator of the universe, and he reads Isaiah 61. Just picture it Jesus of Nazareth before the scriptures of Israel, scriptures, by the way, that he himself authored, reading them and explaining them to people who are very familiar with him. I have to tell you, I am taken by this scene. We have nothing quite like it anywhere else in the Gospels. Other Gospels, like Mark, for example, tell us about Jesus teaching in the synagogues all around the region of Galilee. There's a remarkable first century synagogue that was discovered in the city of Magdal. Think Mary Magdalene. It's a, it's a relatively recent discovery right on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. I was there a few years ago and I have to admit to being quite moved to be there. 
I mean, this is a place that quite likely Jesus stood and taught. So we have this description of Jesus' early ministry around the Sea of Galilee being one of teaching and, and preaching in the synagogue. So in that sense, Luke 4 stands among a well-attested activity of Jesus' early synagogue ministry. But nowhere other than Luke 4 are we seeing what Jesus actually read and taught in the synagogue. That's what makes Luke 4 so special. This is what makes Luke 4 an epiphany moment. Jesus reads the scriptures and then points to himself and says, Today, all of this is fulfilled in your sight. Put in other terms, the promises of Isaiah that you just heard, they all point to me. They're fulfilled in me. It's remarkable. Who are you, Jesus? We ask throughout the centuries. And Jesus, this morning in our midst, stands with an open scroll, reads Isaiah, and then tells us who he is. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon him, Isaiah tells us. Jesus is anointed to this messianic task of restoration and redemption. All of the hopes and the dreams of ancient Israel, hopes for redemption and and the coming of the kingdom of God into our midst, are now happening, Jesus tells us. How lovely on the mountain, says Isaiah, are the feet of those who bring the good news that entails the reign of God in our midst. The announcement of the gospel, or the good news, entails with it the announcement of God's kingdom among us, along with the king who will bring salvation and actually be salvation and restoration and redemption, healing, forgiveness, and the hope of the whole aching world. So Isaiah 61 picks up on themes earlier in the book of Isaiah and again speaks of this agent anointed by God to a task of proclaiming the good news. The king is returned. Zion is restored. Her humiliation is over. Her bondage is now her freedom. Isaiah is very clear about the message of God's good news. It's a message about the conquering king returning to a beleaguered and a weary Zion, announcing God's kingdom reign. The king has won. The kingdom is here. God's dwelling place is now once again among his people. So the message of Isaiah is straightforward. It's one of hope and forgiveness and joy and healing. And the recipients of the message are pretty clear as well. The good news, Isaiah tells us, and Jesus tells us this morning, is announced to the poor. The poor, as a term, of course, does include those who lack material well-being, but it's not merely that. The poor are the bowed down, those who've been laid low. The poor are those who stand in special need of God's help. It's interesting, isn't it, that Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. While Matthew's account says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus warns those who are wealthy. Because people who possess wealth can easily become possessed by their wealth. It is a stealthy and sly way that the evil one can dole people into thinking that they are without need. The Old Testament can speak about a nation becoming dull spiritually, and it uses this very fascinating term to describe it. They become fat 
or spoiled. And in their spoiled condition, they become unaware of their real need. Think about how bizarre to be in a place where you have every material need you have and everything you want at your fingertips, only to be blinded to the truth of who you really are. Poor and in need. A spiritual beggar in need of a king's rescue, in need of a king's grace. But for the poor, Jesus tells us this morning, to those who have a clear sense of who they are in the presence of the all-living and consuming God of holiness and love, to those who know they stand in need of him, Jesus has good news for you today. For those who are poor, for those who are in prison, for those who are bound in chains, for those who are stumbling around the empty house of their own souls searching for the light, Jesus has good news for us. The king has returned. He's here to bring about the reign of God. And he comes with healing in his wings. The scene in Luke is just so arresting. Jesus reads from Isaiah about a future day where God's kingdom descends on earth. And then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back, takes the seated position of the teacher. And then he says with everyone fixed, fixing their eyes on him, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. There's a madness in this claim. Something's off about someone saying this about himself. Isn't this the carpenter's son? People begin to mumble in the audience as they listen in amazement. And that's the scandal. Ordinary human Jesus. The one who fixed the wobbly legs on our family table just last week is now standing in the midst of the synagogue and telling us that all the scriptures are fulfilled in him, that Isaiah the prophet was speaking about him, that Jesus of Nazareth, unlike any prophet before him, both announces the good news of God's coming salvation and actually is that good news and that promised salvation. To be near Jesus, he's saying, is to be near the very presence of God's kingdom among us. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, and the very son of God standing in our midst. It's an absurdity, and it's an epiphany. So may I leave you with a few thoughts to ponder this morning. Here's the first. Throughout the whole gospel of Luke, but especially at its beginning and ending, Jesus wants you to know something very important. If you want an answer to the who is Jesus question, then you'll have to be in deep conversation and communion with the Bible, with Holy Scripture. We all, myself included, have the tendency to project onto Jesus an identity of our own making, but these will not do. The Scriptures are the mysteries by which God reveals to us his Son. No question is more important than the who is Jesus question. And the question can never be answered apart from Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Scripture gets the final word on who Jesus is. I'm sure you've read this ending in John's Gospel. Famous words. Um, It goes something like this. Jesus did many other things, so much so that they could be, this is Genlet paraphrase, so much so they could be written to the moon and back. But these are written that ye might believe. I used to read that text as a superlative statement about all the incredible things that Jesus did that John didn't record, but I'm I'm not sure that's the intent of that 
anymore. Jesus did many other things, but these are written that ye might believe. I actually think the statement is one of negation. In other words, yes, Jesus did do a lot of things, but these are written that ye might believe. What Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John leave us is more than enough. They are sufficient. And the Gospels were never intended to be read alone. They're to be read with the Old Testament and the Scriptures of Israel, like Jesus is doing for us this morning. It's tempting to find greener grass than the Bible when seeking to answer life's most important questions. But Jesus would caution you about watering that grass this morning. Jesus likes to stand before an open scroll and tell you about who he is. Secondly, and you'll be glad to know, finally, this text has something about the grandiose about it. And it should. I mean, Epiphany is the season of the wise men, their majestic gifts to young Jesus. Epiphany, as we heard last week so well, tells us about that incredible miracle at Cana. With Jesus, like he's the creator of the universe or something, stood before the waters and they blushed themselves into the darkest crimson red. And now Jesus is reading the scriptures of Israel this morning and telling us that they speak of him. It's grandiose. But there's also a gentleness in this text and in Isaiah as well. Isaiah says that he speaks words of comfort for those who mourn. He restores those that have a faint spirit. A bruised reed he will not break, and a flickering flame he will not blow out. The portrayal of God's kingdom holds together the soothing qualities of a lilting oboe with the blast of a trumpet and the roll of of a timpani. I'm not sure we know how to hold all these together, but God does. And it's into the togetherness of the grandiose and the gentleness of our Savior that we begin to make some slight headway into humanity's greatest question. Who are you, Jesus? He brings the thunder of God's kingdom, the force of God's judgment against sin, and the gentle kindness of the healer and the shepherd for all the poor and the powerless. Whatever's in your portfolio this morning, I hope during this season of Epiphany that you count yourself among the poor, among those who stand in need of God's forgiveness and his grace. Because when the trumpets and the timpani sound again, it's only the poor in spirit who have a part in the kingdom of God. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.